Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program, hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. I'm Tucker Hyatt. It is my pleasure to introduce Adam Savage, author of Every Tool's a Hammer. As a self-proclaimed obsessive maker of things, Adam has conceived, designed, and built everything from a thousand-shot Nerf gun to some truly amazing Comic-Con costumes. Adam has worked as a graphic designer, animator, stage designer, special effects artist on dozens of feature films and sci-fi movies, including Star Wars Episodes 1 and 2, Terminator 2, and the Matrix sequels. For 14 years, Adam was the popular co-host of Discovery Channel's Mythbusters and of its spin-off, Mythbusters Jr. He co-hosts his weekly podcast, still untitled, The Adam Savage Project, and is the editor-in-chief of Tested.com. Most recently, Adam announced his new series, Savage Builds, premiering in June on the Science Channel. Moderating this evening's program is Kishore Hari, host of the Inquiring Minds podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Adam Savage and Kishore Hari. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Oh, this is an awesome venue to be in. I know. I apologize in advance for wearing a hat indoors, but I'm just having a bad hair week, and this is how I'm dealing with it. (laughs) Oh, we have to start talking about this book. It's a celebration of obsession. It totally Uh, is. And uh, I've known Adam for a little while. Obsession is his hallmark characteristic. But I have to admit, growing up, my parents said obsession is a bad word. Obsession is a negative word. It is something that belies just just over overly focused on something in a way that is is harmful. But you spun obsession in a totally different direction at the beginning of this book. Well, uh, to be clear, also obsessive compulsive disorder is in the DSM. It is a real condition that people have suffer for real from, and that is not the type of obsession that I'm talking about here. Um, what I mean is. Those things that you can't stop thinking about, that thing that you notice every single time. It took me years before I realized how much I loved looking at the stairs in Grand Central Station. And it's, it's the most beautiful building I can think of. I, I grew up in New York, and I spent a lot of time living there, and Grand Central is one of my favorite buildings. And the metal stairs uh, leading from the upper level to the lower level, they're metal, but they're worn down about three-quarters of an inch over the last 125 years. So how many billions of footfalls and how few atoms each one pulls with it to, to weather those stairs down? Like, I love that stuff. And it only took, it took me years before I realized how much I was obsessed with patina and the stories that things tell and that I'm always looking at that. All right. That's a little weird. <laughs> like you're walking to Grand Central and you're like, that staircase is a little worn. Oh, yeah. I, but has it always been that way for you? That's how you always saw the staircase. You were born that way. I grew up with the example that that had a value. So I, I, I grew up in a chaotic household. It was a difficult household. Um, but the, the, my father was a painter, first and foremost. He did many other things for a living. Uh, but he structured his whole life to be able to paint for several hours a day. And I grew up with this incredible example of someone doing that. Uh, And it wasn't that he was showing and selling his work all the time. He certainly did a few shows throughout my childhood, but he had a very complicated relationship to notoriety and to people seeing his work. And so it was clearly this private practice of his that he had to do. And that was just understood to have this significant value. And it had a value of introspection and self-awareness, which, is all, which also was a value I was raised among. Uh, so the moment I started getting obsessed with things, it wasn't like my parents were like, awesome, you're obsessed. 
it was more like they in, they 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 didn't take those things out of my purview. They they let me do that exploring. And when I was interested in stuff, they 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 put it in front of me. What always has impressed me about the way you share those obsessions is that a lot of these are deeply personal views into yourself. And it takes an incredible amount of vulnerability to put some of these obsessions out into the world. Even talking about a Warren staircase in Grand Central yeah. is is not something that uh, I think comes naturally to a lot of people. It, did you kind of build that that comfort with, with sharing some of these obsessions. I, I was going to say I had to build a lot of armor to be able to share that much about myself, but I had to remove a lot. Um, you know, those things that we're fascinated by. And at, at the very age at which we start to become fascinated by the world, when we're 11, 12, 13 years old, and we start to see beyond our own myopia and, you know, I mean, every child's a narcissist. So what's... <laughs> I don't mean that disparagingly. I mean, that's the title of your follow-up book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but once we start to see outside of ourselves and we start to see the wider world and things catch our attention, those things that catch our attention, they're catching our attention because they resonate with something inside of us. And when we reveal those things <laughs> and it's middle school, those enthusiasms make you vulnerable unless they're football or something else that is agreed upon to be something you can be obsessed with. Uh, so Dungeons and Dragons is right out of there. And so is putting on costumes and making movie props and pretending you live in a Mission Impossible universe. Um, and sharing those things with each other. Uh, I say this in the book. That age, that 12, 13 years old is when you share that and people beat you down for it. Uh, I don't mean physically, but sometimes. Uh, that's where a lot of people learn to subsume that stuff because it's, it is showing our bellies. The things that we love expose us. And it's important to be able to find people you can exult with. I, I, gave an, I did a reading the other night in Austin, Texas, and the first question from the audience was this 12-year-old kid that said, what advice do you have for a middle schooler? And I was like, oh, man, it gets so much better. <laughs> <laughs> But even more than that, I said, look, you know, you may be suffering. I've certainly suffered so badly in middle school. And my one advice is, my one piece of advice is find someone else you agree with and share the stuff with them. It only takes one. Uh, I was lucky that my, I was so privileged and lucky that I grew up in the family that I did. And I had that encouragement because when I was abused for, you know, when I took crap for my obsessions, I still understood that those things had a value. I still, I didn't, I didn't eliminate that in myself. Let's talk about one of our shared obsessions, which is cosplay. <laughs> uh, and this is something that took me a long time to actually talk about publicly. Actually, I'll tell you my first cosplay. I don't think yeah. I've ever told you this. I was 15 and I was obsessed with the Simpsons and I went to a fabric store and like a, a Walgreens and bought cotton balls and built a Marge Simpson costume that was seven feet tall. Uh, I spray painted. Your first cosplay was drag. Yeah. That's, I, I it, haven't even tried that yet. It took me until I was in front of 500 people in a live audience to reveal that. Uh, <laughs> but there was something so incredibly freeing about celebrating a a character set I loved. At the same time, it was one of the most vulnerable positions to ever be in is to be in costume. And you talk about this so much in your, in your book. Yeah. Uh, I talk about an episode of Mythbusters in which I knew for the finale, I wanted, I was jumping off buildings for the episode. I wanted it to look really cool in the second half. So I put together a costume that of Neo from the matrix with a long coat and the glasses and boots with buckles all the way up. And I step out from my land cruiser and my whole crew is like, <laughs> they're all like suppressing church giggles. And I feel that like, Oh, I am totally exposed. And then I'm thinking the producer in me is like, yeah, they can go to hell. This is going to look great on camera. <laughs> and then I realized that they weren't insulting me at all. This is my, this is my family. They could see precisely how into it I was. And it was sweet to them. Kishore and I went and saw Endgame together, both dressed as Captain America. 
And the my, best part about that is Adam's car that we went in didn't fit in the garage, so we had to park on the street a couple blocks from the movie theater. So we're walking down a Bay Area street dressed as two Captain America, and like every car is honking at us. Yes, and it was every awesome. car is honking. But my wife was like, so as my wife is zipping me into my costume, <laughs> and she's so awesome about this because it's not like she has a drive to dress up in costume, but she. She's so loving and sweet about She's like, you get this energy about you when you're putting on a costume. And I'm also feeling like I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling like, wow, I'm going to go walk out around in public in this. That's, that's intense. And she's like, my wife is like, you're going to get mobbed at the movie theater. And I'm like, baby, it's way too, I've been off television way too long. You don't know. It won't happen. And seriously, we took four pictures. And I don't think anyone realized that I was one of the people in those pictures. As just two cool Captain America costumes. Um, but it's still, still the, the joy that I get from doing it is also an exposure. And that exposure is a vulnerability. And I don't ever not feel a little raw putting on a costume. And I, I also, I mean, ultimately, the desire to do that and the desire to execute and make those things to to get that experience that I'm looking for is the engine of everything that I have achieved. And so I, my family value and what I have learned is all of the good stuff comes from this weird ass hobby. <laughs> so pay attention and let that do its thing and all this other stuff, self-awareness to boot will, will come out from that. I've I've been lucky enough to see you develop costumes, see you go yeah, through watch them. Yeah, come up from scratch. Yeah, the, all the machinations, and it is a roller coaster of emotions. Seeing you go through the process, work with uh, uh, makers from around the world to get everything just kind of right, and there there's always a point in some of these costumes, and I remember this with your Chewbacca costume, that you feel like it's just not going to come together. There's some failure element that that is coming and the grace with which you approach the idea of failure feels like a superpower. Oh, wow. That's lovely to hear. Cause I'm still pretty hard on myself. Talk I, about that. Well, I mean, you know, so the Chewbacca is a really great example. Cause I've had, I, I have a Chewbacca costume, but like my grandfather's axe, I've replaced every part of it at some point. Um, Including discovering that the bandolier that everyone's been building for all of the uh, 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 the Star Wars cosplayers is wrong. <gasps> yes. What do you mean it's wrong? Actually, if there are any, this is turning into a forty-minute discussion about no, no, this no. bandolier. Everyone. <laughs> the best part. The best part is is that I was so fascinated when I saw a exact replica of the real Chewbacca bandolier and how radically different it was in size from what everyone thought it was that I sat down and I made measurements, measurements, measurements. And then I just like on a plane, I did this elaborate drawing and that drawing is in my book. And if you want to build a Chewbacca bandolier, you can from the plans in the book, little hidden bonus. Um, but every costume is a compromise, right? There's no, no, no costumes, a hundred percent perfect. And when I, I, I'm out doing something with a Chewbacca costume and I pack it back up and I pull it out again two months later and I notice that the hair on the head is totally matted and it's not working. And now I, I've become an expert in styling Chewbacca heads. <laughs> um, only, you laugh, but there's like cans of Aquanet and hair, specific hairbrushes in, involved. In the case in which I store my Chewbacca head. It has all the things I need for styling him in there. Um, the fact is, is that when something, there's a level of my professionalism that comes into play during big failures like that. Like, oh, this mask totally isn't going to work. Okay. I'm not going to waste time right now getting upset that it doesn't work. I'm going to do what it takes to get it across the line or I'm going to eliminate it. And this is something I learned actually from Jamie Heineman. Um, we were on a set on a commercial for Toys R Us. This is 1994. And Jamie had built this elaborate mechanical rig for delivering this, making this toy do its thing, but in a much more spectacular fashion. And the rig failed. And we're shooting like 12 commercials in two days. There's no time for rebuilding this. There's a crew. They literally cost like $500 a minute. And the director's like, what are we going to do? And Jamie's like, well, give me five minutes. 
And he came back and he's like, I see three courses of action. Here's number one. This is what you would get. Here's how it doesn't match what you wanted, but here's what it does deliver. Here's number two. Oh, here's how long that will take and how quickly I can get it done. Here's number two and all those parameters. And number three, you can take your pick and I can have it ready within between an hour and 90 minutes. And it was such an unemotional response to such a heightened, stressful situation. I was like, oh, I'm getting chills just now thinking about watching him and going, oh, yeah, I want... I want that. <laughs> and so if film is definitely a filter career, like you either last for a day or 20 years, because a lot of people walk onto a film set and are like, holy hell, I don't want any part of this malarkey. <laughs> it's just so high stress. But if you can take that stress and not take it personally, you will have the best time of your life because you're solving different problems every five minutes. I've seen you approach... Uh, many projects that have a high failure threshold. And the thing that strikes me isn't just your response to that moment and, and your comfort with facing it. It's that there's this idea that it's not about the failure part. I feel like you've processed that. This isn't about failing forward as, as we sometimes talk about in Silicon Valley, but it's about this moment that you ask for help, that you open yourself up uh, and that's what's always really struck me is that ability to ask for help in those moments of just of where there's high stress, high, uh, high risk. Learning to ask for help is the hardest lesson I had. Um, I grew up with a myth. I grew up with the myth of the singular creator. And that was my dad. And the myth and that was a myth. I, I have met. I have met a couple of singular creators in my life. They're, they're not one in a million. They're one in a billion. They are surpassingly rare. And I'm lucky to have met one or two of them. I am not one of them, and nobody in the world will ever be one of them. And we all have to do what we have to do with help and with collaboration. And many of the biggest mistakes I've made, and I've lost friends, and I've ruined projects, and I've hurt people I loved have been because I didn't know to ask for help at that time. Um, I've traditionally been a bad delegator because I like doing stuff myself. I was giving, I've, I have a new shop assistant. We were just talking about her. She's amazing, really excited about the collaboration that we're going to do. And I gave her something to do yesterday morning that, that I finished before lunch. And it was just that it was, she was working on something else. And I was like, look, if you have, if you want to take some time out of this and start to noodle away at this, here's the parameters of this. And then as I start to lay it out, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty easy. Okay. So you can work on this later. And then like basically an hour and a half later, I was like, Hey, I already did it. I did it because it looked like fun. And I just slammed through it. Now that means that I often want to build everything myself, but I can't. So I have to look for things to go, to go delegate. And that, that help, that widening of the, of the tasks. I mean, doing all the, building the orange aces NASA spacesuit last year, which I did for New York Comic Con, was so satisfying because I think I had seven collaborators around the world. And I name checked all of them in the tweet storm and the Facebook posts and the videos we put up on Tested. And they were all so grateful to have their work highlighted and so proud of their work. And it was really thrilling. So that costume, I'm loaning it to a museum this summer. And the museum is like built by Adam Savage. And I'm like, ah, you can't, no, you're going to have to put this whole list of people on here. Uh, Those moments matter. And I'll, I'll bring up a prop. Okay. So I have a little Ooh. toy train in front of me. That's a gumball machine. It's kind of uh, important to me. Because I built it when I was 14. Holy shit. And I, we, we, uh, we built it in shop class. That's a thing that used to exist in yeah. our <laughs> education system. Oh, I, I see. This was a jar. And you put yeah, the gumballs you put in the, the jar. gumballs in the top and you turn the thing. The reason I keep this on my desk, because it, well, first of all, it's one of the first things I remember really making uh, outside yeah. of those like yeah. art projects as a kid. It's this front piece here. Um, it's because I drilled like holes wrong in this project. Yeah. yeah. And I did it on everybody's in the class. Oh, so each and person that, took a piece and yeah, we were kind of doing assembly line. And so I screwed it up for everybody <laughs> <laughs> and the shop teacher, um, came over and saw like clearly saw that I had messed something up. And that moment that teacher looked down and basically gathered the group and was like, Oh, this is wrong. And then asked us how we we're going to fix it. 
And he gave us permission right. to start to brainstorm. And we built this piece that's in my right hand to kind of solve the problem. And I keep wow. it on, I, I keep it on my desk because it reminds me of a, an approach to failure that yeah. there's always people around you willing to help. If you're willing to open yourself up, I wanted to keep this hidden, like that. It was my right. secret that I had screwed this up. Uh, it, but that lesson like resonates in everything I do. And it seemed like you touched upon that a lot in this book. Well, and I mean, especially for the kids in the audience that think about doing something and screwing it up and hiding the evidence. I will tell you, you will meet in your life adults who hide all the evidence of their iniquities and their failures. And those adults are awful to be around. People who don't think that they failed or aren't willing to admit to their failures are... I don't have time for them. I think that it lends a tonic to your character that is vital to know that we are fallible and flawed vessels, and that is the best we can hope for. Uh, there's also, within this the Silicon Valley thing of fail forward, what we really mean and what your teacher was teaching you here was iteration, that the process of getting to an end product is one that involves trips up the wrong branches all the time to get to the top of the tree. And that's fine. That's, those aren't failures. They're simply things you're climbing past on your way to the end. Uh, that's a beautiful sentiment. Like, <laughs> I still feel like, like 30 years later, I'm learning that lesson over and over again. And it seems like you, you still are, like, the way you talk about things as you're working, like, this is still a rich area of exploration. It's a rich area of exploration and a, a constantly difficult one. Um, I took apart my shop. Uh, to do this, I'm, I have a new show coming out on Science Channel in June uh, called Savage Builds. And in order to make this low budget that we had to make this show work, I emptied my shop into the production for five months, which I thought, this is great. I have all this stuff. We just moved it. And then I realized I'd removed any opportunity for self-soothing myself <laughs> for five months. I couldn't make a box in my shop. It was a shop-shaped object, but it wasn't actually a shop. And I won't make that mistake again because I'm still recovering. We, we wrapped at the end of April. It's now the end of May. And my shop is just now coming back to being the engine of the extension of my nervous system that it is, that, it, that I need it to be. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, ca I'm consistently cautious on this book tour when people ask questions that seem to imply that I've got something figured out? And the answer is no, not at all. Uh, like, none of us do. Like, nobody, no, none of us escape imposter complex. None of us escape the feeling crappy when we fail. And my inner critic still regularly tells me, my inner critic regularly tells me, you're an idiot and you don't have any business making stuff. And it, that hurts that part of me would tell another part of me that. And that the part that gets told that knows what a lie it is. There's this, it, and knows that that emotional component is something that will pass if I let it. And maybe now it's time to organize a drawer instead of continue to beat my head against this thing I'm trying to build. Let's talk about your your shop, the cave. <laughs> Speaking uh, of obsession, yeah, I, I want to talk about the places people make. I've gotten obsessed with that recently, they, like seeing where people are creating their projects and right. how, and how they're sort of adapting to the environment and making it their own. Uh, can you talk about the cave and how it like came to be and and just a little bit about that space and what it means to you? Well, the the cave is my shop in San Francisco. It's about two thousand square feet. About uh, two-thirds of it is office and display area where we have meetings, and my pool table is there, and it's where I've got dozens of helmets and hundreds of costumes. Uh, and then about a third of it, about 700 square feet, is my shop space. And it is a refinement of more than a dozen shops over the last 30 35 years that I've that I've worked out of and I've worked in everything from a basement bench to a 8 by 12 foot space in the basement of my house in Sunnyside to this to a 2000 square foot shop for a while in the or in the in the, in the mid 90s and this won't be a this isn't a permanent shop I don't own the building it's in and I'll, I may have a smaller shop again someday and I may have a bigger shop um, but what it exemplifies for me is um, my particular working style, which is fast and iterative. 
And what I mean by iterative, as I was saying before, it's not failure, it's iteration. Um, Jamie and I would tell this joke that if you gave each of us five hours to make something, Jamie would spend four and a half hours making lists and diagrams. And then he'd assemble something that would work at the end. I would take the same five hours and build this thing six times. And the sixth one would work. And we'd get to the same result in the same amount of time. But that's what I like to do. I like to iterate really quickly. So all of the tools in the shop have been uh, chosen for the speed with which they can do what I need them to do. I hate running out of stuff, so I've got sanding belts to last through an apocalypse. (laughs) Um, And I understood after a long period of time uh, that eventually landed me at Industrial Light and Magic, I came to understand that I have a shop philosophy that I want to be able to get to any tool without moving anything out of the way. And I thought, what should I call that? And I realized, oh, it's first order retrievability. So my shop exemplifies first order retrievability. And and for for an example, uh, I have a milling machine and a lathe. These are two giant multi-thousand pound tools for carving hunks out of metal very precisely. Uh, carving hunks out of anything you want, but like it'll, you, can, you could build a car using these two things if you had the time. Uh, and you need other tools to support them. So at the mill, you're often using an Allen wrench to adjust parts of it. And so I have a nice set of Allen wrenches there. But then I was working on my lathe, and I was like, every time I needed an Allen wrench on the lathe, I was walking over to the mill, and I started to get really pissed off about this. So I bought a second set of Allen wrenches for the lathe. They're 12 feet from the mill. But the amount of time of walking over to the mill, to because also, by the way, you never grab the right size Allen wrench on the first try, ever, <laughs> ever, ever. I could pick a bolt off the floor and tell you whether it was English or metric, coarse or fine, and exactly the thread count, but I cannot pick the right Allen wrench. <laughs> the amount of time it saves me is well worth the expense, the one-time expense of a really nice set of Bondhus T-handled Allen wrenches. And that's a value. So my shop exemplifies that value. I spent a lot of my TV money making it really slick because I thought, oh, I'm not always going to have a TV show, but I'm going to be pushing around these tools for the rest of my life. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. I remember visiting the cave the first time, and I understand you you call it first server retrievability. To me, it occurred as high functioning hoarder. There's stuff. <laughs> well, there's everywhere. That too. There is, and it's overwhelming because you see these you know incredible creations. And my first thought is like, my space to make does not look like this, and probably will never look like this. And I I was intimidated by it. Because there is this idea that started to invade my head that maker spaces have to look a certain way. Yeah. And then there was this creator that came by, tested, um, Melissa Ng, uh, who makes these incredible gauntlets. Uh, if you want to describe her Lime work. Lime Cluster is her, is her company. And Melissa is uh, uh, an amazing maker who wanted to make gauntlets and did not know any other makers. And so... She outsider arted her way mm-hmm. to this solutions where she's 3D printing blanket molds and injecting uh, uh, urethane rubber of really specific durometers with beautiful paint jobs all inside a corporate office space in her family's music school in Queens. <laughs> and her family's like, Okay, you want to make gauntlets? Sure, but you're, you're still going to have to dress like you work in a corporation. You're still going to have to work for the family business because she and her sisters run this music school. So in this very corporate environment where she's wearing like a corporate button-down blouse, she's doing injection-molded gauntlets that are the most beautiful things you've ever seen. Yeah, and it wasn't to me about that it's she's carpeted. making this. It's carpeted. Yeah. A, a carpeted <laughs> shop. I don't know how... <laughs> She makes beautiful stuff. There's no question about it. But what exploded in my head that when I was talking to her is that this idea that you can just make anywhere as long as it's your space. You feel comfortable there. And that's one of the things I love to do on Twitter is to ask 
my followers to send me pictures of their tiny spaces. Send me pictures of your workspace. I love the sewing, the sewing, the, the sewing workbench inside the walk-in closet, or the, mm. you know, the truck that turns into a woodworking shop. Uh, we all have limitations where we work, and those limitations aren't necessarily limitations. They're just parameters that we have to work within. And those restrictions make restrictions have always made great art. Uh, think of all the movies in which a director never got told no. Wait a second. What's a really good example of that? I'm going to have to think of that. I would say anything involving James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I disagree because I, I love his scripts. I think his scripts are really loving and beautiful. And I just watched Avatar and it holds up. We'll disagree with that uh, <laughs> later. <laughs> uh, but I think the, the idea of limitations being critical to success is a hallmark of what you try to talk about in this book because you talk about a word that is scary to me, deadlines, yeah. with outright joy. Totally. And I do not understand it. How can deadlines be joyous? There's such a refinement of your thinking process. So what are you talking about? <laughs> Well, when you're up against a deadline and you get closer and closer to it, you start having to literally throw things out of the airplane to keep it in the air. And the question you're asking is, is this critical for the airplane to fly? No. Out it goes. Is this thing, is this task I want to tackle critical and inimical to the, to the soul of what I'm making or is it ancillary to it? These are great questions we should be asking all the time anyway. But I have found that deadlines are the only way I can get some things finished. I labored back and forth making a, a cane sp spacesuit from Alien, a masterpiece of design by Jean Giraud, Mobius, one of the, the greatest comic book artists in history, uh, and Ridley Scott, and John Mollo's Academy Award-winning effects crew built these costumes. They're magnificent. And I managed to get some castings of original pieces and I figured out what type of French lingerie broderie you could buy by the yard that was this thing here in this detail and I bought 200 yards of it. And 10 or 12 years go by as I'm assembling all the parts of this and every couple of years I'll make a new list and tackle some part. And then I was like, I gotta finish this costume. Okay, 2014 Comic-Con in San Diego, that'll be my deadline. And... That got it across the line. It's not perfect. I have had to refine it a few times since then. But that got it across the line. And now it's a thing that I can modify rather than keep on, you know, trying to get done. You're famous for having some projects that have gone on a number of years. There's an alien costume in the office that I think took you 10 years? Is that That's right? the one, the 14. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. Um, how do you organize a project over that period of time? And I've seen you organize yeah. these projects. It's in a kind of an impressive process, what you do. So we're going to talk about lists in a second. I just want to do one more thing about deadlines, which is the thing that I, I say this in the book, and it's this rhetorical flourish that helped physicalize it for me, is that deadlines lop branches off of your decision tree. And, and that practice of asking. So that's what Jamie, what Jamie was doing when the rig didn't work was he was reducing the day's task for the entire crew to an essence of the director makes the call. I need to give the director options. Here are the options of what can be done in the next several hours to get what we need in the can. That is the, the, that's almost like a meditative practice to me, the idea of trying to think what is the essence of the thing. Um, and when I... So that, that's my final thing on, organ, on, on, on deadlines. I love them. I love them. <laughs> the less time, the more interesting. It's still weird. <laughs> Understand, I came out of commercials, which is very different than film in special effects. So in commercials, in films, you have like, you know, you have eight months to make this. You know, we had three months to make a space shuttle for space cowboys. But Jamie would call me up in commercial business. This is 1994. He calls me up and he's like, oh, we've got a photo shoot. We've got a photo shoot coming up. Oh, the, the photographer wants photographer wants uh, water. He wants water to spray, to sheet. He wants it to spurt. He wants streams. Uh, so can you do that? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can come in tomorrow morning. He's like, no, 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 the shoot is uh, tomorrow morning. <laughs> I'm like, it's 1 p.m. He's like, yeah, can you come in? 
And so I went in and made it work. I made six different rigs that's through water in six different ways for the photographer. And so that was, I did 200 commercials with those kind of deadlines. Uh, and I grew to love it. I grew to find it so delightful to just like, it, and it doesn't work unless you're able to encompass the big picture and think about how this is going to fit in. This, it, it's much harder if you're just a model maker making one thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but being able to be the supervisor of the thing and think through that is, it's a, it's a great practice. Um, and you asked about uh, the organization of these things. When I put stuff away for long periods of time, and I do, I like, I have a whole wall in my shop that is simply uncompleted projects, clearly labeled. The shelves I built for it were only eight inches deep, so you can't double stack things because double stack shelves are the devil's playground. <laughs> and drawers are where things go to die. <laughs> Got to see everything. I now store everything in makeup storage cases from Amazon because they're all clear plastic. It's great. I actually made a leather-working toolkit out of two big clear plastic makeup kits, and I glued them together and put a handle on top. Anyway, (laughs) when I store a project for a long period of time, I make a careful accounting of where I am in that project, of all the different multiple pieces and parts. And I, I do a lot of documentation. Um, again, being the son of an artist, I saw my dad photograph each one of his paintings. I saw him take those slides and have replicas made of them and label each one so they went in slide portfolios. And I have been photographing my work since I was 15. Uh, and so I have a lot of that documentation and I find going back through it very relaxing, a very invigorating process. So to me, it's become part of the creative process that I have these folders of endless amounts of material also including where I've been in the, within, the, within the stream of consciousness that I'm, that I'm doing, executing these projects within. Um, so I love lists. I love making long lists. I love making long lists into shorter lists. I love, and most specifically, I love check boxes at the left side of any list item. Where did you learn this? That was ILM. I was a list maker from way back. But in Industrial Light and Magic, my supervisor, Brian Grenand, Seriously, one of the best supervisors I'll ever work for, um, sh- showed me. It's like when a list item is done, you, make a, you have a little box on the left and you color it in. When it's half done, you color it in diagonally. So at the end of every day, you're looking at what you've completed. And the next morning begins with taking all the uncompleted and half-completed items and transferring them to a new list. So every day begins with a list. Wrap your head around that day's tasks. And I love the checkboxes because they tell me I'm getting stuff done. And the more of little dark check boxes on the left, the more I'm getting done, the more momentum I have, the more energy I have. And I'm so addicted to this, I'll put down list items like drive to work. <laughs> Eat a sandwich. Yep, I did that. You know, I want more. I'm, I'm not above putting things on that I've just done that I hadn't already put on the list. Oh, I didn't know I had to paint the tires, but I did. Paint tires already done. Good. One of the things I noticed you doing, which like struck me as, as funny when I first saw it, but I think I, I'm starting to get a handle on it, is there'll be days that you're in the shop where you seem to be doing nothing but just sort of cleaning up yeah. and putting stuff away yeah. and organizing. And it struck me one day that like you're not just organizing. No. Um, I am, I'm continuing, continually putting my shop into my body in terms of the extension of my nervous system that I want it to be. And that's a long, fancy way of saying that I used to think of sweeping up and shop organization as this thing that happened on the outside of the work, that it was like this, these warts on the circle of the work. Um, and I've come to understand it's like 25% of the process of having a shop is refining it. Because, I mean... I am sure like any audience that comes out to see me, there are some people who have shops here. And I am sure that some of you have really, really well-organized shops. And I don't care how organized they are. I know that in that shop, there is a shelf or a drawer that you fear to go near. (laughs) There's There's a drawer in all of our kitchens we haven't seen the bottom of in a decade. Who knows what matchbook covers and phone numbers are down there. And... I, I love the process of continually going, oh, there's still another drawer to organize. There's still another thing. And maybe I just, it's occurring to me as you ask that question that one of the reasons I'm still having difficulty in my shop is that I'm trying to work there 
and I've only just put it back together. And what I need to do is refine its back togetherness, mm-hmm. right? Because it, 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 it changed. I changed in that five months it was gone. There, there's, there's a new me and there's a new shop. And I mean, that's life, right? Like we go away for a long trip. We come back and our house is a little bit different. And the rhythm in the house becomes a little bit different. It's the same thing in the shop. So now what you're reminding me of is that when I go in tomorrow, um, one of the things I'm going to spend time doing is just tackling a couple of those shelves. Because it's not, the actual energy expenditure is small. The mental expenditure of knowing, okay, now I know this drawer houses only planes and plane sharpening equipment. When you know that and you lay it out and you start to make, I start to make the foam core thing that holds them all, that's the, the tip of an iceberg of all this thought that's gone into what should this drawer be devoted to. The end of the book touches upon this in the sense that so much about making, I thought, was making stuff, being in motion, checking off those items off the list. And you say no. It, part of it is the reflection, taking the time to live amongst the materials. I, totally. And actually, I'll go even further than that. I, I remember this, this first – this is the first time I've talked about this on this book tour. But, and it's not actually in the book, but uh, there's a process of becoming good at something. Uh, at the beginning of anything, whether it's playing the guitar or making stuff or carpentry, um, it's just a, it's a long laundry list of things to do, to learn, to figure out. And then you start to build some institutional knowledge. You start to put this stuff in your body. And there was this specific refinement of my use of tools that happened after about five years of making stuff professionally, where, where I realized that the tool itself was the smallest part of the operation of using the tool. That the table saw, which we think cuts wood, and like we think, I'm going to cut something on a table saw. So therefore, you think the table saw is 95% of that equation. It's not. It's it's 5% of the equation. 95% is making sure I have cut, measured my piece right, that it's facing in the right direction, the grain's the way I want, the wood is the way I want. Is the cut accurate? Have I squared the blade? Now I cut. And the cut becomes this tiny little icing on the cake. Uh, and that refinement of understanding that the cut's the smallest, not the biggest part, was a huge development for me. And I saw it happening. I I realized, oh, wow, this is why I hate routers. (laughs) (laughs) So much setup it takes. I can't deal. (laughs) Thinking about routers. Also, the idea of a blade spinning out there at the other... Routers are just terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Table saws are also terrifying. And this I know this is for the radio, but I'm going to stand up. Uh, a table saw, every time I'm at a table saw, you would notice me literally placing my legs at, an, uh, at my feet at an angle to the direction of the blade so I can't be tipped over in any specific way. And I'm always, as I'm feeding a piece of wood into the table saw, expecting a group of circus clowns handling <laughs> greasy ball bearings to come playing a brass band and spilling marbles all over the floor that I'll slip and gut myself on the table saw. <laughs> I think of that every single time I use it. I am supposed to do some, like, woodworking this weekend with my table saw. <laughs> do you ever get in a slump? Is there, like, a maker's block? Like, yeah, there's writer's block? Totally. All the time. All the time. How um, do you deal with it? I, 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 uh, the same way everyone else does. It sucks in the middle, and it, you, it's hard to remember afterwards. I mean, that's just true. Uh, one of the graces of my life now is the kind of stories that I get to tell on Tested as opposed to the stories I tell on television. And it's not to say that they're mutually exclusive, but I, I have this latitude on Tested to explore totally different kinds of storytelling than television could sustain. Uh, and just like if you ask me my favorite moments of Mythbusters, the, I wouldn't say, they're oh, the time Jamie did blah, blah, blah. It was more like the moment I understood X, the moment I learned what my job really was, the moment I understood I had something to, to contribute to this. Uh, and the same is, to, is true for the storytelling I've gotten to do on Tested. And we were, I was doing some spacesuit parts a few years ago that I was going to send to my friend Ryan Nagata who's an unbelievable maker and replicator of space hardware from uh, American space program. And Ryan's a good friend of mine and a colleague, and his work is so precise, I'm intimidated by it all the time. Uh, 
And I wanted these parts I was making for him to be really, really good. And it had been a while since I'd used a milling machine. And so this one day build we were filming turned out to be five versions of me messing up the same part five separate times. Mm-hmm. And I was so in a funk at the end of the day that that was my inner crit. That was the day my inner critic said, you have no business making stuff. And again, I still understood that was part of the process. It didn't make it suck any less. It did not temper it at all. I mean, I went home and I talked to my wife about it instead of like getting mad at someone on the road. So I've developed in that regard. (laughs) It's that moment when you realize that everyone on the road is an asshole and you realize, oh, it's me. (laughs) But I came in the next day and I didn't feel refreshed. But I had realized what my mistake was, that I had not taken the time with a milling machine specifically. Your order of operations are super critical. The order in which you tackle each cut is vital. And if you don't pay attention, you can paint yourself into corners where you're like, ah, you're breaking something to get it back out of that corner. So I came in the next day with a plan and I executed it and I got those parts across the line. And then I was like, you know what? Joey, point the camera over here. And I talked about the feeling. I talked about that dark feeling. Um, because it's, it's easy, especially in our fame-obsessed culture, uh, to, to fall under the spell that somebody who has done something you really like might have figured something out or have a, you know, have a line on how to make this work. And what I was doing by talking to the camera, by talking to Joey's camera that day, was explaining, no. Nobody has a line on anything. We're all stumbling around in this. And there's nothing that insulates me from the imposter complex, from my dark inner critic, from feeling crappy, from being down on myself, uh, except time. Like, nothing affects that but time and, and, and you know, compassion. I, um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with Dale Doherty, who founded Maker Faire uh, and has just been... A, just a shining star for bringing the community together. You acknowledge him early in the book. Yeah, it was amazing, yeah. And I remember being at Maker Faire, it must have been like eight, nine years ago, and him saying like, uh, I don't really know if I'm a maker. I'm like, dude, you founded Maker Faire. <laughs> and so like, I, like one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you is like, when did you finally just say, I'm a maker? And how do you define like what a maker is? And how should we approach that question? That... That's a lovely question. I haven't been asked that before. Um, I, I, like I said, I grew up encouraged to explore creatively and that creativity had a value. It's still, you don't believe your family, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you guys are shining me on. I know you love me. Uh, and there was a point at which I was like, I had moved into New York City from Terrytown, where I did most of my growing up. And New York intoxicated 18-year-old me. I slept every third day. Seriously, I became addicted to New York at dawn, which is a magical place where the lights are on and no one's home yet. It's so incredible. It's like you've entered a zombie apocalypse every day. And so I'd wander around the city all day long, all night long, and I would, New York City in the 80s was one of the great garbage-picking towns on the planet, so I'd, like, find a cash register and drag it home to my dorm room, to my roommate's consternation. <laughs> and I took these pieces and keys I'd pulled out of this, t- uh, this cash register, and I started putting them together into kind of this mechanical hand arrangement. And then I took a bunch of wire that I'd found in another dumpster and I sort of turned it into a hand and I built this wire frame hand with mechanics inside of it. And I remember someone saying, I remember my, my RA, Krista, saying, this is a real thing you've made. This is, this is art. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, that's, that's real. That's a, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing. It's a compelling object. And it's a, it's a long way of saying I've always felt okay saying I'm a maker. Uh, and that is perhaps the greatest privilege that I was raised with. And I was raised with a lot of privilege. Uh, because it's a, it's a real power to contribute to your culture. And I'm not saying that, I, that, I'm, that I'm unique in that. Right? So for me, you asked what I think making is. And thanks for the wonderful softball question. Because... Making to me is every 
anytime you are using your point of view to yield something out of nothing that's important to you. And that might be a poem or a dress or a car or a movie or a book. When we have a point of view, we have something to contribute. And when we have a point of view, in my, my feeling is that we are taking the culture that is around us and we are filtering it through our bodies or our hands or our voices. And what we come out with becomes a part of the culture that we're in. And it's, we are sharing ourselves with each other. And these things that we're sharing, they are, they are stories about our experience. They are ways in which we're understanding how the shape of our world. Um, it's a beautiful process. And to show kids, literally, I mean, we haven't talked about kids yet, but to me, it's vital that every child gets to experience the joy of that power. Uh, I did some work. I was lucky enough to do some work for the Obama administration towards the end of civilization uh, (laughs) where I was helping promote makerspaces around the country, specifically makerspaces that were lowering the threshold of entry so that any kid who wanted could walk in off the street and be laser cutting in a couple of minutes. And I came across this amazing place, the Elizabeth Forward High School, where the art teacher had been given a makerspace. Like, here's here's a bunch of 3D printing machines. Go. She's like, I don't know how to use these. So she worked with her students, all these young Christian girls, to figure out how to use this space. And then they looked around for a project, and they realized they were near uh, an old folks' residency home. So they they took all the students over there, and each student uh, adopted a resident, as it were, and spent several weeks, a semester, iterating something that would improve the lives of each of the residents. What an amazing gift to give these kids to see. Mm -hmm. The collaboration that can occur from attempting to solve a problem, a real-world problem, and the satisfaction of being able to actually do it. Let's talk about kids. Yeah. Uh, There is a moment that we're having right now where we're talking about the role of teachers, the role of tests, the role of of making and discovery in schools. Uh, There's so much research about what could work, what shouldn't, what can't work. Like, I've heard you give advice to a million different kids over yeah. the years, it feels like. Uh, have Over these years, have you come to any sort of realizations after talking to so many teachers? And I have a few, with the caveat that I am not an educator. I have not trained to be an educator. I'm going to push back on you for a second. There is uh, no I, universe that I exist in <laughs> that you haven't been an educator to all you. of us. Thank you. I am I, the idea of standing in front of a group of children and keeping them occupied for an hour terrifies <laughs> me. And the real hard work that teachers do on the ground every day is something I am in awe of and would not pretend to be able to comment upon in a granular way. Uh, and when people ask me, how can we get our kids interested in science? My first answer is give your kids science teacher 40 bucks. I'm not kidding. They are spending their own hard-won and not enough salary. Every teacher you know is doing that. If every parent gave each of their kids' teachers 10 bucks a semester, that would be unbelievable. And nor should they, by the way, because we should be funding that. But, um, yeah, I do have some conclusions. I hate tests. And the reason I hate tests is because in order to, quote, quantify someone's knowledge, you need to break it down into small things called facts. And if there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's that facts are not knowledge. And the disservice that this does is that it teaches kids specifically things like math and science are a group of facts to memorize by the test on Tuesday. And... The best teachers that I had were the best teachers for two different reasons. One, they were the teachers that saw me. They were the teachers that reached out and saw me. And I think everyone in this room has that experience of a teacher that was the first one that gave you a view of yourself outside your family. And it's such a gift. I'm getting choked up just mentioning it. And this is why we need small class sizes so the teachers have the time to see each and every one of our kids. But the other thing that they did was they put what they were teaching me into a story 
that made sense. So my freshman earth science teacher, Dan Frere, a force of nature who, when I visited him 20 years later, still looked exactly the same and was still <laughs> yelling at the kids, you get out of there. I mean, just total New York science teacher. He told us, oh, the best way to understand a glacier is that it's a river on quaaludes. <laughs> and if you... I can imagine the notes that the uh, teacher it got. It was that. the 80s. No one cared. <laughs> All of our parents were still recovering from the 70s. <laughs> the, 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 the deep physics that is clear in the sentence, a glacier is a river on quaaludes, is a magnificent thing. And I understood glaciers at that moment in a way that few other sentences about them have ever made clear to me. Dan Frere took the idea and put it into a story. And one of the great things I have learned about telling stories, because that's ultimately what I realized my job on Mythbusters was. And while that sounds like painfully obvious, it took me at least 10 years to figure it out. And then I realized that all I'd ever done was tell stories. Like when I was gluing stuff on spaceships, those things I'm gluing on don't work unless I have a story. But what I learned on Mythbusters was that science and art, both practices in which I have spent significant portions of my life, science and art are simply two different ways of telling stories to each other about how the universe works. And those stories change, and they modify, and each one of us has a different version to tell, and arguably one version of those stories uh, might be more rigorous and the other might be more emotional, but scientists can tell you about emotional science and artists can tell you about rigorous art. They both traipse deeply into each other's territory. And so this is a long way of saying the teachers want to tell these stories. And when we focus on testing, we inhibit their ability to actually tell our kids things they will remember. Yeah. I love the, I love the peopled center approach. Like I, I remember that teacher for me. Yes. Uh, it was my chemistry teacher, Mr. Winan. And he would always kick a trash can to wake us up in a <laughs> chemistry class. And the day that changed me was he drew a molecule on the board that was this molecule, Taxol, that was ended up becoming a breast cancer treatment. And he just left it up there with no context. And it was just a series of lines and letters on the board. But then he like let us just talk about it and look it up and like surface our own knowledge about it. And it changed my whole life. I ended up becoming a chemist, like not in small part due to that moment. Uh, and that people-centric approach is something that I see you take ev in every uh, context that you operate in, that this is fundamentally about people. It is. Um, and, you know, at this moment in time when I'm seriously not sure we're all going to make it out of the next 20 years, both politically and environmentally, um, and I don't know what path there is to take forward. I do know that the only way we will survive, if we do, is because we've learned to listen to each other, because we've learned to understand each other's experience and understand that there are people in this room, two people might be sitting next to each other that live in vastly different versions of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I was saying this like the other night, like if you think a person in a wheelchair is a person who's just like you, except they have wheels... They live in a totally different planet than you do with completely different rules. Uh, and that's, we have to come to terms with understanding how many different versions of the world there are and understand each other's experience in order to do that. One of the things I'm really excited about that's coming very soon, just about a week away, is your return to television. Oh, is that like literally like it's less than two weeks away? That's yeah. right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> yes. Savage Builds? Okay. Uh, so when Discovery asked me to do Mythbusters Jr., I was like, yeah, I'd love to do Mythbusters Jr. And I've got this other show, too, that I really want to make. Uh, and they were like, what is it? And I was like, I build weird stuff every week. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, y you got to give us a little bit more. Uh, and ultimately, what we ended up with is eight episodes of the most fun I've ever had in my life. This show is called Savage Builds with different collaborators every week. Um, in the first episode, we make, a, we make what is a genuine real-world prototype of Iron Man's armor out of 3D-printed titanium. And it I mean, if you could wave a magic <laughs> wand... 
If you could wave a magic wand and make Tony Stark non-fictional, what I built is precisely what would be his first iteration of the Iron Man suit. We made, you remember the, the movie The Fifth Element by Luc Besson with the ZF-1, the egg gun that shoots six different things, nets, fire, ice, arrows, rockets. We built a real one. <laughs> and... More than that, um, he wasn't able to come up on set, so we arranged a Skype call with my friend, Gary Oldman, who is a maker, who sends me pictures of stuff he's making and asks me advice about which airbrush to buy, and we've been corresponding for years based only on the mutual love of putting stuff together. Uh, and I had finished a ZF-1 years ago, and he, I had made one for him. So I sent it down to him, uh, and we had a Skype call where he, he was uh, part of the, the inspiration for building the real one. We made oh, – we, uh, to, uh, my old Mythbusters colleague, Tori Belleci, um came on the show to have a food fight with me. I'm guessing Min- it's not an average food fight. Minimum distance, 100 feet. <laughs> and it could not be lethal. However, so in order to test what lethal really meant, we built a potato cannon, which is the... I had never built a potato cannon. I don't know how this got past me, but I had never built one before, and holy hell, those things are terrifying. <laughs> There's a picture, we'll tweet it in the next few days, of me peeking through the hole in a mannequin made by a potato. Um, that was also... It turns out that when you shoot ketchup greased hot dogs at someone from 100 feet away they leave this hilarious little sphincter mark on the <laughs> chef's whites of your opponent <laughs> then there's an enti- there's an entire episode uh, there's an entire episode where i was planning to build something elaborate to keep nitroglycerin from exploding but we had so much trouble getting nitroglycerin to reliably explode <laughs> That we basically spent the whole episode figuring out just how terrifying nitroglycerin is. And the answer is super terrifying. Uh, I'm really excited about this show. Uh, it, It has a little bit of everything. It's got a little bit of cosplay. It's got a bunch of engineering. It's got different collaborators. And... You know, I, I really revere and treasure my collaboration with Jamie Heineman, and I'm also so glad it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I don't, I'm not insulting Jamie at all. He feels exactly the same way. Uh, and it was delightful to bring in different people. We made a sword using a meteorite. I'm, uh, oh, yeah. I'm not going to sleep well tonight. This <laughs> sounds amazing. I'm going to just be up um, for the next couple weeks in excitement. <laughs> uh, you wrote this book that essentially is like part memoir, part treatise on everything you've learned over the years around making. Uh, I'm curious, as you look forward, uh, what you hope the, the legacy of this moment in time when making is in the spotlight to be for a whole generation of people that are now excited about the prospect of just rolling up their sleeves and getting to work. I can, I can see a really lovely future like that. I can see a... Uh, in, in the Middle Ages, if you had a spoon, it was either you carved it yourself or you hired some peasant to make it for you. And then the Industrial Revolution happens. We stamp spoons out of sheets of metal and everyone has them. And now we're in this place where rapid prototyping is becoming rapidly rapid manufacturing, which is super exciting. Because I'd love to buy my next set of silverware from a kid down the street who's made it in discussions with me about what I want out of this thing. And I have a relationship with the creator. I have so many fruitful, valuable relationships on Etsy. I just want more and more of that. Hey, you made this beautiful thing. I have this thing I want built. Could you do it? Yes, I can. And then we're both going to learn through the process. So to me, a future where we have properly trained a generation of digital natives how to manipulate these incredible tools at our disposal to... <laughs> that is a weird sound with me in the room, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, if I start to run, I think the best advice is to try and catch up. <laughs> but I suspect that's just a battery running out. What was I saying? <laughs> I'm just thinking about running as fast as I can right now. Uh, my last thought, just to conclude. Oh, sorry. Yeah. If this book has a legacy, 
Whenever I read books about the creative process or about making stuff, and I have a whole library of them, the really good ones make my hands itch to work. They make me want to put the book down and go to the workshop. Uh, and uh, I, a good friend of mine listened to my book last week and for the last several days has been sending me drawings <laughs> of this, both this object she wants to make and this cosplay she wants to wear the object with. And this is someone who is literally like a former political reporter. <laughs> this is way outside their normal wheelhouse. And I just, I'm so excited seeing these texts of the drawings she's been making. So if it gets anybody interested in making, then I'll have done what I set out to do. I love that, that vision of the world. I have to admit, after knowing you for almost a, a decade now, the lessons I always walk away with from you are centered and rooted in just one thing, and that is just a sense of just kindness to the world around you uh, and using that to guide your your heart, whether it be to make, whether it to be jump into costume, whether it be to explode a concrete mixer in the East Bay. <laughs> there's always an element of heart to everything you do, and I can't thank you enough for that. Please join me in thanking Adam Savage. Kishore Hari. Let's let Adam and Kishore escape to the lobby as we say thank you, gentlemen. And I hope you all enjoyed the program tonight brought to you by the Commonwealth Club, Silicon Valley, and by Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. I would like again to thank Adam Savage, Kishore Hari. Our audience here in Campbell, and also those of you joining us on the radio and by podcast. And now, this meeting is adjourned. Good night, everybody. Thank you for being here.